I'd like to invite you uh, again to turn to the letter of 1 Timothy, almost to the end of the New Testament. We have um, had a series of sermons for several months, off and on through 1 Timothy, and we come almost to the end today. I plan to preach one more time after Easter to finish the book, but today we'll look at, we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and following. Remind you, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his son in the faith, a young man, about 30 years old, named, named Timothy. Paul had great confidence in Timothy. He had sent him to the city of Ephesus to pastor the church there, which was eight or ten years old. Paul had planted that church. It was a great church, but like all churches, there are ebbs and flows, and he had warned, Paul had warned when he left there, that there would be false teaching that would arise even from their own midst, and it had happened. And now Timothy has been sent there to deal with a number of issues, basically to restructure the church. He's in the previous uh, five chapters, he's talked about uh, qualifications and roles of church officers, elders and deacons, and roles older women in the church, widows particularly, play in the church. He's talked about relationships between older believers and younger believers and vice versa, and he's talked a lot about the role of preaching and teaching. And so now we come almost to the climax of the, the letter, but follow with me, if you will, verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As Paul brings this letter to a conclusion... We have to ask, what was uppermost, what was most important, what was most critical in his mind as he writes to Timothy? And the answer to that is a big word, and it's a Christian term, sanctification. His main concern as he closed the letter, he dealt with a lot of important things that I just mentioned to you. But it was the holiness of young Timothy that is the Apostle Paul's chief concern. Above and beyond every other consideration in that local church, he wants Timothy to give attention to his own growth in Christ, to his own sanctification, to his own holiness. Now, as we shall see, the Apostle Paul does so in terms of five words. I study the Bible typically. I print out, when I'm preparing a sermon, I use a Bible study method that I was taught as a brand new Christian back in junior high school. I, but I didn't have a computer then. I don't think anyone except IBM had a computer then. But you take, I take a passage and I use Bible Gateway off the internet and I copy the passage and I double space it like on Microsoft Word and then I begin to study it, first of all looking at key terms and I circle those. 
It only took half a second to realize this is built around five terms. There are five commands here, five words. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold of, and keep. And so that's my outline. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold of, and keep. Now before we look at those, let me make two brief observations about the whole process of sanctification. When I teach the inquirers class, and many of you have been through that, I try to explain the concept of sanctification this way. If this, from left to right, could be a timeline of your life, from when you were born until the future, and on that line I will place a cross, and the cross signifies the moment of justification. Regardless of what age you were, but assuming you're a Christian now, it is that point in time when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you understood the bad news, good news, the bad news that we were created to have a right relationship with God, but because of the sin of our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, that relationship was broken. We start off where they ended up. We come into this world spiritually dead. And so we can't do enough things to make ourselves right with God because we have a problem of of spiritual sin and death. But thankfully, God sent a substitute, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He obeyed God's law in every respect. And then he died a substitutionary death. In other words, not a death that he deserved, for he had done nothing wrong, but a death for others, for us. And so when I come to understand that and put my faith in it, my trust in that, even though it may take years leading up to that point, years of prayers and talking and exposure and witnessing, uh, at that moment, at that point in time, that is the act of justification. God makes us right. I draw a cross. Then I draw a line that looks like this, going up, and it culminates in a term that the Bible uses called glorification or glory, which is when we go to be with God, whether he comes again first or we die, whichever happens first. And so the process here is the process of sanctification. It is a process whereby we are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live and live more and more unto righteousness and to die unto sinfulness. And so it's drawn like this to reflect what St. Augustine's called his view of sanctification, which is, I think, the Bible's view, which is even though we're making progress, there's ebbs and flows Sometimes it looks like we're going backwards in our sanctification. But hopefully God is moving us and completing that good work which he began within us. So this passage is about that process of sanctification. Now in the process of sanctification there are two very important observations that we have to know in our minds. And that is part of sanctification is an active participation that we take. There are things that we need to do. We have obligations which we will look at in just a moment. But also, there's an aspect of sanctification that is passive. When we are justified, we experience union with Christ. As Colossians says, we are co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected with Him, and we are seated with Him, if you read Colossians 3, right now in the heavenlies. We are righteous in God's sight through Christ. I cannot add to the work of Christ with my good works. I cannot take away from what he has done. When he before the cross, before he died on the cross, said it is finished, his work was complete. It was not partial. It was complete. So by doing these things to grow in sanctification, 
Do not confuse the work of Christ whereby we're thinking that we're adding something to what Jesus did. Or I'll make God love me more. Or if I don't do these things, I am less acceptable to God. No, we are right with God through the work of Christ, His work only, His life, His substitutionary death. So in that sense, we are passive in sanctification. That we belong to Him as a, as a Christian. And He is molding me into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit, as Romans says, is conforming us to the image of Christ. So it's very important not to confuse the obligations in sanctification with the fact that what's already been accomplished in sanctification. With that in mind, let's look at some of the positive and negative aspects of the process of growing in Christ. First of all, the first word is flee. Flee. Flee these things, he says in verse 11. Now these things, I believe, are in reference to what's been said earlier in the chapter. In verse 4, he had talked about unhealthy craving for controversy. He talked about how there were some false teachers in the church that quarreled about words and all it did was produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who were depraved in mind and so on. So there are certain things, this is a partial list of what we should flee. And it might be useful for us this morning to understand the picture that the Apostle Paul is actually using as he wrote to Timothy, and I'll put it this way. If you are a man of God, if you're a woman of God, or you're striving to be, then you have to be a person who has your back towards sin. It will be your basic posture in life that you will turn and flee from temptation. He's turned his back towards sin. He is fleeing from sin. Now, we know in the Bible there are sins, temptations that we are to fight and others from which, which there is to be flight. We are to flee from those. When I was a senior high school student, I had really just begun to be very interested in this whole area of sanctification and growing in Christ. And that Christmas holidays during the Christmas break, a number from our church group in, in Alabama joined with other church groups at a large Christian conference for high school students in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I'd never been to Gatlinburg. And once was enough. But we, uh, if, at that time, I don't know what it looks like now, but it was just a solid, like, mile or two, one main strip with all these little shops and novelty things and see Candy Made or all this, or uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, those kind of things. Well, on that strip was a museum, a little storefront, and it was called the House of Satan. <laughs> Not to be, you know, kind of ambiguous, the House of Satan. And it had the, the middle-aged picture, the middle ages picture, not the middle-aged picture, of Satan, you know, with a fork and all that, in red with the horns. Uh, that was the big, big sign. So you're kind of declaring your allegiance, I guess, when you walk through the door. But this was a Christian conference, and we would end at night around 8 or 9 o'clock, and then we were free to go downtown and spend whatever we wanted to, uh, spend whatever time and money down there. So I was with a couple of friends and we were walking by and there was a big entrance area, like it was like an old movie theater where you'd go in and you'd play, pay the tickets before you walked through the doors to get in. And apparently there were some other younger students from the conference that were engaged in a conversation, if I can call it that, more of an argument, with the girl that was seated behind the window where you buy your tickets. And I remember as we rounded the corner, I could hear her saying, if you really are a Christian, if you really believe, then you should test your faith. If your, taste is, if, your, 
if your faith is real, it can stand being tested. So go on in there, pay your money, and go on in there, and you can find out if your faith is real or not. <laughs> well, even a youngster like, like I was at the time saw the illogical nature of what she was trying to say or urging them to do. In the Bible, that's not the approach. God puts us through tests. He tests our faith, but never are we called upon to test our faith through tempting ourselves. We're to examine ourselves and so forth, see if we are of the faith, as it says. But we are not to, to move toward temptation by our own choice. We are to flee from that. If you read Bunyan's allegorical book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there at the very beginning you have Christian. He's been reading the scriptures. He's now become convicted of his sin. He has this burden of guilt upon his back. And he meets evangelist. And evangelist urges him to flee from the city of destruction. That was the city in which he lived. And flee toward the narrow gate. And at first he can't see the narrow gate. And the evangelist says, so do you see the yonder light that shines? Well, run in that direction. What was Bunyan communicating? Well, a lot of things, but one was we flee. We flee from certain things, and we flee toward others. Some of you will remember, a large number of you will remember the TV show The Fugitive in the 1960s. I would have said the 60s, but I, let me be specific. The 1960s, it ran for years, from 1963 to 1967. My family watch the fugitive every week. What was going to happen to Dr. David Kimball this week? Was the lieutenant going to catch him? Was he going to find the one-armed man who had killed his wife, supposedly? Wikipedia can teach you a lot. I didn't realize there were 120 episodes, each lasting 51 minutes, but it culminated in two of the most widely watched finales in TV history up to that time. Here was this man always fleeing, always fleeing from being caught always pursuing something else. Are you fleeing temptation this morning? Right now, if I could just freeze this and you were to look at your own life, are you dabbling in things you need to flee from? Second word is pursue. So we're to flee certain things and then we are to pursue. And he gives a list of things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance. We pursue righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ but then we seek to live out in this life according to that. We're to pursue godliness. We don't hear this term near as much as it used to be said, but there was a time, and there should be still a time, I hope it comes back when you and I and others could be referred to as, well, that's a godly man. That's a godly woman. You don't hear that too often. Not that it isn't still true, but we ought to, we ought to pursue that. We are to pursue faith. Faith in this sense is trust. We should pursue trusting God. I was looking at some pictures earlier this week. In Baltimore, Maryland, I was looking at pictures of a cemetery there called the Green Mount Cemetery. Buried in that large cemetery is the famous John Hopkins, the infamous John Wilkes Booth, and a great Christian scholar, leader to whom every one of us in this room, whether we realize it or not, owe a debt of gratitude, J. Gresham Machen. And I was looking at the tombstone and carved as an epitaph on the tombstone for his, right next to his mother Mary and his father, carved on the tombstone were three words in Greek. Three words from Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. That's how 
His family and friends wanted him remembered. That's how he wanted to be remembered, as a man full of faith. So we're to pursue that. We're to pursue love. We're to pursue perseverance and steadfastness. And the last thing he mentions, we are to pursue gentleness. So we are to flee. Christian, you are to flee certain things. You are to pursue other things. And third, you are to fight. I have mentioned numerous times through the years a book written, it's really a, a compilation of sermons by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. They were compiled and put in a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. That is still a, a widely read, widely purchased book, even though it was written, put together back in the 1960s. It's just a compilation of sermons, but it's very, very practical, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones was. Sound exposition with great application. And one of the things he mentions in that book is that when you and I wake up in your first waking moments each morning, when just you begin to realize, oh, I'm still alive and I am waking up. Oh, yeah, it was. At that very moment, he said, that is when we must realize I am in a spiritual battle. I am in a battle and it is going on right now. And therefore, I should do as Ephesians says and take up the spiritual armor, the, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of, the sword of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And so we have to realize that we are in a battle. Do you realize that? When you dress this morning, as you put on a shirt or a dress, or as you were putting on your articles of clothing, did you think I'm also in spiritual warfare and I need to clothe myself? as Ephesians says, with spiritual armor. So flee, pursue, fight. Fourth, take hold of. The fourth imperative, it says in verse 12, is take hold of eternal life. Paul makes reference to the confession that Timothy had made, probably at Timothy's baptism, when he professed his faith. And he says, take hold of eternal life. Grasp it. If you have your back to the city of destruction and you have before you eternal life that comes down from above, hold on to it and don't let it go. He's not talking about whether we can lose our forgiveness, lose our salvation. He's talking about you grasp it and you, you funnel your life toward that. Now, you know what it's like to hold on to something. Our son Stephen recently had his 15th birthday just a few weeks ago. And many of you were here in the church when he was born. He has numerous disabilities, but he's able to walk on his own. And if the, if the ground is flat, he can walk. And we have to watch him, particularly when traffic's nearby, because he may just choose to walk right out in front of a truck. This past Wednesday, I was leaving the, the church after the journey groups down here Wednesday night, and I went to get Stephen from the nursery and I'm holding his hand. And the, the grip starts out in the nursery area as, a, as kind of a tight grip. We move into the hallway. He loves the nursery. And so it's not a surprise now that right about the time we hit the doors to come out in the brickyard area, he does this, you know, jelly down because he doesn't want to leave. So he just kind of goes limp and I get angry. Stephen, get up, get up. And so the grip tightens. And I lift him up because he wants to stay. And uh, like y'all do every Sunday, right? And uh, 
So I move him out, and so I kind of get him up to speed because knowing he's wanting to go backwards, I try to pick up the momentum, and we're moving, and then we go up the steps. And so the grip gets a little tighter, and then we get in front of the chapel, and we're moving that way toward the car, and the, everything's still going fine then, but then we come to the street. Okay, evening, Wednesday, traffic, first street. Here we go. Uh, so I'm looking, and the police car's there, but the policeman hadn't, he's not paying attention yet. Good guy, but at the moment, I'm, I'm beating him there. Great guy, great guy, carries a gun. And uh, I grab, now my grip has become a death grip. Now I'm holding him because I've got his life, in a sense, in mind. And if there are cars coming or trucks, and you never know on that road how fast, then I've got him, and then we move quickly across the street. Then we go up the incline of the parking lot. And it doesn't seem like an incline <laughs> if you're by yourself moving quick. And we go up to the top and then get in the car, and then I'm exhausted. But the minute I read this the other day, as I was studying this toward the end of the week, and said, hold on to, that is a picture. This is not two girlfriend, boyfriend walking around with their little fingers clasped. This is hold on, he says. Flee, pursue, fight, hold on to. You don't let it go. Do not let it go. This past Wednesday, also that same day, marked the 265th anniversary of the conversion of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the tune, the hymn. Newton was a hard man who mocked God. He was not liked even by those with whom he worked as a seafaring man and later as a slave trader or as a slave trader. One night when they were on the ship in the ocean, He's awakened in his cabin by crashing waves. Water filled the cabin. He and the other men feared for their lives. They began to stuff clothes and so forth into cracks in the board and nail those over to try to keep this boat afloat. They pumped water desperately, and by the next day, they had pretty much resigned themselves that they would all drown that day in the ocean. The interesting thing is John Newton had been raised by a Christian mother up until the age of seven. So if you don't think you're making an impact, moms with young children, she had taught him about Christ. And even though he did not accept it, he believed it. He had no questions from an intellectual standpoint that what he had been taught was true. But God was only someone whom he reviled in every manner up until that time. He thought about this as he prepared to die. He thought about Christ and the things he had been taught about the death of Christ and things I mentioned earlier and about faith in him. And he prayed. God spared them. The weather changed and only one man drowned that day. The rest were spared. It was in the wake of that as Newton continued to think about the things he had thought about when he feared for his, his life that he committed himself to Christ. And for the rest of his years, he never wavered. We can't find any indication that Newton in any way went back or backslid, whatever you want to call it. He took hold of eternal life and he never let go. Last words. Keep. Verse 14. Keep the commandment. It is not clear from the passage which specific commandment Paul has in mind. Maybe he was summarizing everything that had been mentioned in the letter up to this point. But what's most fascinating is that he invokes two witnesses. In verse 13, he summons Jesus Christ, who made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. 
Now, here's the way I interpret this. I'm just going to jump right into application. This morning, are you weary? Are you having a tough time? Are you bloodied and beaten up from the battle, the spiritual battle? Are the wounds, as you look, you feel that your wounds are just laid open as you wrestle with Satan? Then look to Jesus. Look to the one who stood before Pontius Pilate and then was beaten and then was crucified, who was mocked. You look to him. Look to him and let that vision of Jesus Christ be ever before you. He stands beside you to encourage you in what you are going through. Secondly, Paul invokes God the Father. And he describes him this way, who gives life to all things. God made everything. He gives life to everything. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone possesses immortality. Paul is saying this, I believe, that you and I, as we go through the process of sanctification, as we grow, as we continue in this life as believers, becoming more and more like Christ, he is saying you and I must have before us a vision of God that is so great and so clear of his majesty and his power and how immense he is and the depths of his wisdom that when you think you cannot put another foot in front of another that you are so weak, then draw from the strength of the one who is the Lord of lords, who sits upon the throne, and the one who, Paul says, can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Well, as we prepare to approach the table, how long must we engage in this battle? Is this something from which we will graduate in this life? How long must I pursue? How long must I fight? How long must I take hold of? Well, here's the answer until Jesus comes again, until Jesus returns. There's no respite. There's no stopping here. There's no let's fold our hands and rest for a while here. But until Jesus comes, in other words, throughout the course of our lives, yours and mine, this is to be the picture of us. Always fleeing, always pursuing, always fighting, always holding on. And may God give us the strength and may God so enable us that we would persevere into the end. In just a moment, we'll come to the Lord's table. I'll give the words of institution that are from our book of church order. But I would just remind you today that the Lord's table signifies that gospel, the work of Christ, and the death of Christ. And by partaking it, that signifies our faith in that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone or in a battle with no resources and support. We thank you that the Holy Spirit indwells us in union with Christ, that he guides us into all truth, that he comforts us in our sorrows. I pray for each of us here today that, that our trust would be in Christ and in him only for our salvation, that we would be seeking to grow in godliness in these very areas. For those of us who are ensnared in some temptation maybe no one else but you knows about, we ask that today might be a day of deliverance, a day of repentance, and that we might see that your promise is true, that whenever we are tempted, that you provide a way of escape and that we would see it and pursue it. We pray for those who are downtrodden, who feel very discouraged, that you might use this time right now to give them encouragement and that they might begin to experience that joy which is inexpressible. 
be for with those who are perplexed and questioning many things, that they might understand that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And we pray in his name. Amen.